Welcome to the Upper Room Sermon of the Week. For more information, go to urfellowship.com. How are you? That good, huh? That good today. Well, so we are in a series called Peculiar People, if you haven't been with us for a while. And in this series, we've been talking about how we as Christians are to be different than the culture around us. And today I have a very interesting topic, a topic I've been wanting to talk on for a long time. I'm going to be talking about singleness, all right, being single. And obviously in this kind of quick time frame, we won't get to cover every nuance of the single experience, so I apologize if I don't get to get to everything, but we're going to try to kind of run straight down the middle, get some bi- good biblical thoughts into our mind about it. And we felt like this was an important topic because a lot of people are telling a lot of things to single people. And, and for the most part, whenever a single, whenever single people walk into a church service, they hear a, a married pastor use marriage illustrations. We talk a lot about marriage in churches, marriage health and those sorts of things. But how often do we really take a look, a biblical look at what it means to be single? So I wanted to spend a little time today talking about biblical singlehood. And you might be asking, why is this a peculiar people topic? I believe that the, the conservative church, like our culture, has elevated sex and romance and even marriage beyond where it should be. Many churches treat singlehood like a disease. The church, I think, has honestly led the way for this major error in the culture's thinking, that being single means loneliness. That, that is completely contrary to the Bible. Singlehood in the Bible isn't just allowed, it is described in some places as the preferential option. And I think that singles have uh, an intimate, they can have an intimate and fulfilling relationships full of love, and it's not just a consolation prize. It can be just as rewarding and fulfilling as marriage. Our culture, even many churches, think that isn't true. So this is peculiar on a few levels. Now, I have, I have a concern in doing a sermon about singleness. I'm concerned that some of you married people will feel like this isn't pertinent to you at all. But, but I'm here to tell you that in today's church climate, usually... When a single person says, I would like to grow in my relationship with the Lord, a single person is told, what you need to do is find a godly married person and learn from them. But in reality, in in, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that married people have a lot to learn from, from godly single people. Godly singles have a lot to teach the church of Jesus Christ. So I'd encourage you as a married person to start to learn how to minister and learn from your single friends and family. So, so today, for the most part, we're just going to knock down some myths about singleness and marriage, okay? And it's, it's, it's going to be fun, okay? You ready? We're going to jump in. So like I said, there's a few myths or misunderstandings that have been done that have done some damage in, in just our understanding of what singleness is. The first myth is what I call the marriage equals completion myth. This myth assumes that, just, that, that being married and having kids is some kind of ultimate state for mankind. And thus, if you don't get married, or at least find that special someone to spend your life with, then you have missed out on the essential part of, your, of, of having a full life. And sadly, the church promotes this myth as much, if not more, than regular society. The assumption is that marriage is the ideal state, and singleness is an inferior or incomplete state. 
So let's look at what the Bible says about that, okay? So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Mark 3.31. In Mark 3, it'll be up here too, if you, if you don't want to turn there. But in Mark 3.31 through 35, it says, uh, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother? Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So so what's going on here? Did did Jesus not love his mother and brothers? Of course he did. But he was using this opportunity to teach something very important. He had a greater family than even his biological one. The family he was creating in a church would trump even the bonds of biology. Our biological families are only temporary relationships. His focus was on those whom he called to himself. He was calling out a new family where single people in Christ, or people not really in families, are full-fledged family members on par with all others, bearing fruit for God and becoming mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters of the eternal kind. Okay, let's go to Ephesians 5, 5.31 and 32. It says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. So, so Paul explains here that marriage was given to us as a sign of something. Marriage was not an end unto itself. God created it to point to a higher reality. Christ's relationship to his church. Marriage is not ultimate. It is a sign and a shadow of a higher reality, our relationship with Christ. And according to scripture, relationships in Christ are more permanent and more precious than relationships in families. Okay, let's go to Luke eleven twenty seven. It says, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. So listen, I'm all into people talking back to me while I'm preaching. That's great, but this has got to be one of the weirdest things ever said to someone while they're preaching, right? The King James says, you can read it. We can just put it on the screen so you can read along. Yeah. Blessed is the womb that bare thee and the paps which thou hast sucked. Nope. Don't do that, all right? Don't say that while I'm preaching. And Jesus, instead of doing what I would have done, which is have that weird person immediately removed, he uses this opportunity to make an amazing statement. He said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So take a minute to let that sink in. Those who obey the word of God are more blessed and precious to Jesus than even his own biological mother, he said. Jesus says, being my brother, my mom, not a big deal. Being united to me by having my spirit dwelling in you, huge deal. Okay, let's go to Matthew 22, 30. It says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So in heaven, I will not be married to my wife. And I'm not sure what that's like, but it's not like the relationship we have here. So what's it going to be like? 
I don't know. When I see her, will I give her a suggestive wink? I don't know. Will I steal a smooch from her every now and then? I don't, I don't know. And I'm tempted to let that make me sad, but I know that whatever God has for us will be better than here. If anything, we'll be closer than we are here. And I don't know how it works, but the point is that marriage is not eternal or ultimate. Marriage is a sign and a foretaste of a future kingdom of God. And I don't want to, don't, don't hear me dismissing the importance of the sign, okay? It's one of the very best of God's good gifts to us, and it's an indispensable part of the created order. But listen, and this, this is crucial, life goes wrong when you make the sign ultimate. Marriage and singleness, Paul says, are temporary gifts that God gives for the fulfillment of his purposes on earth. In 1 Corinthians 7, 17, Paul is addressing the church in Corinth, which, seemed to have, which I guess seemed to have a lot of single people in it, and he says, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. So, so let me put it a different way. Wherever you are, be there. Wherever you are, be there to the glory of God. He's saying you're not lacking if you're a single you are not overlooked if you are single. If you are not in Christ, you have ev- if you are in Christ, you have everything you need. Don't just cope with being single until you until you can finally get into the marriage part and get on with your life. If that's your situation, if you are single, live it as a believer. And he's also looking at the married people and he's saying, "Married people, your spouse is not cramping your style. They're not holding you back from the fullness of what God has for you." No, that's God's gift to you. If you're married, be married to the glory of God. Enjoy where you're at. Enjoy the gift you have been given, whether it's singleness or marriage. In Ecclesiastes 3, you don't have to go there, but it says that there is a time for everything, a season for everything. Everything has a purpose under heaven. It says there's a time to embrace, there's a time to shun embracing, there's a time to be married, and a time to be single. Now, whether, wherever you're at, Learn to sanctify it. Learn to sanctify your state in life. Enjoy it. Make the most of it. Be married to the glory of God. Be single to the glory of God. And maybe you, are, you maybe as a single person, you're saying, okay, I hear you, pastor boy, but I don't want to be alone. You're not supposed to be alone. It's just that marriage is not the only way to not be alone. Listen, I, a lot of times I'll hear people say, all you need is God. That sounds really nice. The problem is God never said that, and it's not true. All right? God said it's not good that a man should be alone. It's just that marriage is not the only way God takes care of that. The ultimate community in God's kingdom is the church. And as the church, we need to do a better job of including and accepting those in our community who are single for whatever reason. And one of the first steps toward that is we need to get rid of the myth that real life uh, and and the only complete life is the married one. And we need to quit giving off this vibe in the church. If you are married, make room in your life for some people who are single. This goes back to, to hospitality, which we talked about last week. As married people, it is often easiest to do community with other married people. But hospitality is finding those who need community, who are lonely maybe, who might be strangers, or the people who maybe you wouldn't wouldn't think of first when it comes to getting together and developing relationships with them. 
All right. So myth number two that needs destroyed. That's, that was myth number one. Myth number two that needs destroyed. Romantic love completes us. The most widely accepted myth in our culture is that our happiness and our self-worth are dependent on being loved romantically. Our culture thinks that romantic love completes us, right? Some of you might remember that heart-touching scene in Jerry Maguire where Tom Cruise looks at Renee Zellweger and says, you complete me, right? That's how we see it. I'm incomplete until you love me. And I'm everything I am because you love me. This idea is everywhere. You can hear it in the lyrics of our songs. I'm a child of the 80s and everyone knows music reached its pinnacle back then, right? So maybe some of you will recognize the lyrics of this song. You know our love was meant to be the kind of love that lasts forever. And I want you here with me from tonight until the end of time. You should know everywhere I go, always on my mind, in my heart, in my soul, baby. You're the meaning in my life. You're the inspiration. You bring feeling to my life. You're the inspiration. Want to have you near me. Want to have you hear, want, want to have you hear me saying, no one needs you more than I need you. Debatably good song. Terrible theology. Every romantic movie has the same plot. The story begins just as two people are about to meet each other, and they realize everything in their lives have been leading up to this point. They exchange some witty banter. They have a Disney-esque romantic affair where they find true love. And once they do that, the story fades out. The message is clear. Life begins and ends by finding romance. But the truth is, lonely... Insecure, unhappy single people become lonely, insecure, unhappy married people. Problems like loneliness, insecurity, and unhappiness are not cured by another human's companionship. They are cured by the love of Christ. Gary Thomas says, marriage doesn't solve emptiness, it exposes it. If someone can't live without you, he or she will never be happy living with you either. We weren't designed to meet the deep soul needs of another human being. We just weren't. Listen, my wife, she is great at a lot of things. She's amazing and competent and wise and talented, but I'm going to let you in on something. Do you know what she is absolutely terrible at? Being God. So am I. I'm a terrible God too. Christ in the church completes you, not another human being. A gift of God, no matter how good, should never replace in your heart the thing it symbolizes. Myth number three that needs destroyed. Being single means life should be all about you. <clears throat> Let me tell you the, the world's view of singleness, okay? That it's, it's your time to get what you want, when you want to make the most of your life, to enjoy it before you get the old ball and chain, right? Because then you lose all possible freedom. And so it's your time to enjoy it, to become self-aware, to develop self-esteem, to to go through self-discovery, self, 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 self. Now the problem with that is, in 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 35, through Paul, God is pretty clear about what the purpose of your singleness is. 
Paul's talking to single people and he says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world, of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So what is the purpose of singleness? It's that you may live your life in undivided devotion to the Lord. It is a gift that's been given to you. There, this gift is that there can be minimal distractions in your way. And it's to live, to, it's to live with undivided devotion to the Lord. I mean, it's just the truth. Single people are less encumbered and distracted than married people. Especially married people with young kids. Right? When I was single, I remember watching my older friends having kids. And just to go you know, to the store down the street is this massive endeavor of loading up the minivan. Right? To go on vacation, you have to like move heaven and earth to mobilize these munchkins. And even getting married. When you initially get married, I tell you what, one plus one equals four financially, right? All your costs are going to go up. And you're not going to go take your wife and sleep on your buddy's couch when you go travel. It's just not going to happen. You're going to suddenly have higher bills and greater challenges, even if you have a low-maintenance wife or low-maintenance husband. There's just added details and responsibilities with marriage and children that you don't have when you're single. My wife is a wonderful gift to me, but when I got married, my interests got divided. Before I got married, you know, to move, it took me one buddy, a Volkswagen, a few bungee cords, and 15 minutes. Right? Now if we move... Listen, I got like three ladies in my house. It would take a carload just to haul all the products we stock in our bathroom, right? I look around the bathroom and we have all many kinds of soaps now, different kinds of soaps and shampoos for different parts of the body. I don't know what half of that stuff is. My bathroom used to have just one bar of soap in it and I cleaned everything with it. My face, my hair, the floors, everything with it. Right? My schedule is different. Even for ministry, I see what's happening in Puerto Rico or Houston after the hurricanes, and I would like to jump on a, be able to jump on a plane or boat and go and help. But that isn't nearly as easy when you have a family. There's responsibilities. You know, and, and singles, don't hear me saying that you shouldn't take on responsibilities. That isn't what I'm saying. I'm saying commit your life to the right kind of responsibilities for this stage of your life. Singleness can be a gift that allows you to be more devoted to God's kingdom. And the big, the big point is this, okay? We tend to, as human beings, we tend to focus on the frustrations of our stage, the stage that we're in, and focus on the advantages of a different stage. And I don't want you to miss the advantages of being single because you're pining away for something else. If you're single, don't sit around and wonder, when is God going to bless me? He is blessing you. This is part of the blessing. The advantage of singleness is freedom and time. No other person in life has the amount of freedom or time that a single person does. Adam named a crap ton of animals before Eve came along. You can get a lot done when you're single. And, and I would challenge you to do it. I would challenge you to do it. 
and listen, this isn't just on singles. The, the average American spends 7.5 hours a day looking at a screen. Okay? The average gamer in America today is over the age of 30. So if you think video, games are, are, video gamers are just little kids, it's not. Mostly it's adults on their phone. And I'm not, I'm not going to rip on you for playing video games. You play your Candy Crush, I don't care. But I would challenge you. Don't spend your whole life solving little problems on a screen when the whole world's on fire. There's so much pain in the world right now. And so here in the midst of this, God has dedicated some of you to a season of singleness. And I don't don't want to downplay the struggles of that. But I want you to know it's not to fill with distraction. It is to use your time and freedom to pursue undistracted devotion to the Lord. Myth four that needs destroyed. Um, If you're single, I'm guessing that you have heard this one. When you learn to be content, that's when you'll get married. Singles, have you heard that one before? I see some people nodding. If you, if you just learn to be content, that's when you'll get married. Now, let me submit to you that this is, this is an error. Let me give you a quote uh, from Carolyn McCulley from her book, her book, Did I Kiss Marriage Goodbye? She says, I've often heard married people say to singles that we won't get married until we are content in our singleness. I'm sure that is offered by well-meaning couples who want to see their single friends happy and content in God's provision, but creates a work-based mentality to receiving gifts, which can lead to condemnation. The Lord doesn't require that we attain to a particular state before he grants a gift. We can't earn any particular gift any more than we can earn our own salvation. It's all of grace. However, we should humbly listen to our friends and receive their input about cultivating contentment. We just shouldn't attach it to the expectation of a blessing. So let me put it another way. Every time married people tell singles, just learn to be content and then you'll get a spouse. You are attaching the expectation of a blessing. And that can put people into a terrible spin cycle of, God, I just want to surrender to you. I feel like I can, I'm content Still no spouse? Okay, am I not content enough? Okay, now God, I've decided that I can be single for the rest of my life. Still no? Married people, don't do that. Encourage single people in their singleness. Encourage them that it's a good gift. But don't say as soon as you learn to be content, expect to be married. Because that's work-based mentality. And we serve a gracious God, not a God who functions by works. It's really important to understand. Okay, so those are a few myths about singleness that need destroyed. Because there's, there's so much to gain from re-envisioning how we look at singleness. <clears throat> In Matthew 19, Jesus talks about singleness. And, and I, believe, I believe this is the only time Jesus taught on singleness at all. The, the, the disciples were, were discussing marriage with Jesus, and, and the disciples make this kind of ignorant, cynical statement about marriage. You can read it, but, but again, instead of rolling his eyes at something dumb someone says, Jesus uses the opportunity to make a very interesting comment. He said, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who chose to live, or who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
the one who can't accept this should accept it. So Jesus refers to three types of eunuchs. And if you don't know what a eunuch is, uh, you can look it up, or maybe don't. That might be a terrible idea. Google eunuch with caution. But we don't really use that word eunuch anymore. A eunuch, for our purposes, was someone who never married and who served the king faithfully. But what Jesus is saying is as important and relevant now as it was back then. So when Jesus talks about these three types of eunuchs, he's using the three eunuchs as a way to say that there are three types or groups of people who may be given the gift of singleness. All right? He's using them as, as examples of single, groups of single people. So first category, he says that there are eunuchs who are born that way. Now when he says this, he may be referring to those who are not, not well suited physically or developmentally for marriage or those who are unable to function sexually within a heterosexual marriage, people who have same-sex attraction. Okay? Second category, eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. So I don't think Jesus is referring to those who, people who were physically mutilated as they did in the time of the Persians. Rather, I think those who are single, not by choice, but remain single because of other people or life circumstances. They were made single by others. So he may be referring to those whose spouses died or left them, or people who simply haven't found a suitable spouse. Then he says that there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In saying that, he is referring to those who, for the glory of God's kingdom, remain single and commit their lives to serving God and his people. Then Jesus says, the one who can accept this should accept it. Jesus is challenging us to grasp a very big idea that there may be temporary seasons or lifelong commitments to singleness that that some make for the glory of God and the sanctification of their lives. The interesting thing is that in Jesus' day, eunuchs were excluded from temple worship according to the law. But then comes a wonderful promise of a time when things would change. And I love this. Isaiah prophesies this in Isaiah 56, 4 and 5. He says... For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. In in our culture, the idea that someone would forego romantic love and marriage as as an act of worship and obedience to God is very strange but we're supposed to be peculiar people. We're called to serve a kingdom that is greater and believe that in the end God will reward faithfulness. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but this is saying that people who have lived their lives as single people for the glory of God, for those people, God promises blessings in the age to come that are better than the blessings of marriage and children. And sadly, many churches are still guilty of excluding those who are different. Those who are single or those who don't fit the heterosexual stereotype are often made to feel second class. Not only does this rob these precious people of genuine Christian community they long for, it also robs the church of the gifts and compassion and energy that they bring to the community of faith. So let's not be like many churches. Let's be peculiar. 
let's welcome those who, for, for whatever reason, live their lives as single people. Amen? All right. A single person is really clapping. Yeah. So, your, so your homework this week. Start to get to know the people in different stages than you. We're meant to be gifts to one another with the different gifts we have in our particular season of life. Okay? So let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for the different seasons of life and the different gifts that you have given us. We thank you that each of us is a valuable member of the family of God, whether we are single or married. And I pray that all our singles, whether they are they're single for a season or for a lifetime, would know they are complete in Christ just as they are. And that being single provides a special time of opportunity for building up the body of Christ as God leads in their lives. Help those that are single to develop an undivided devotion to you, Lord. May we link arms together, God, and see our communities change because the married and the single love each other and the world so well. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.